today's preaching text is from Exodus chapters 2, 3, and 4. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under, his, under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard them groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall, you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of, slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, What of your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he can speak fluently. Even now he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, his heart will be glad. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. 
and will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall speak for you to the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you, and you shall serve as God for him. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. God of our ancestors, reveal yourself to us this morning. Amen. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, a long time has passed between this week's reading and last week's reading, so let me fill you in on the story so far. Last week, if you recall, we heard about Jacob on the run after cheating his brother and deceiving his father. And we also heard about God renewing the family promise to Jacob, promising to make of Jacob a great nation, to give his descendants the land first promised to his grandfather Abraham. Well, fast forward to today's reading, and the promise is half-realized. Jacob's descendants have indeed become a great nation. For in the 20 years that Jacob was away from his family on the run, waiting for the rage of his brother to die down, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and 12 sons were born to him. And from those sons came 12 great families, eventually becoming known as the 12 tribes of Israel. The other uh, half of the promise, however, that promise of the inheritance of land, well, that peace is still awaiting fulfillment. For near the end of Jacob, uh, or Israel's life, he and his family relocated to Egypt to escape a severe drought. And it was there over the centuries that they prospered and multiplied into a great and numerous people. But this prosperity and growth was seen by the Egyptian rulers as a threat. And so they enslaved the Hebrew people and oppressed them harshly even going so far as to kill all their male children to make this nation less of a threat. We're not told how long this policy was enforced, but it was during this terrible period that Moses was born. And it was only through God's grace in the resourcefulness of his mother and the kindness of Pharaoh's daughter that Moses survived to see that burning bush on the mountain of God. In our reading today, Moses, like Jacob last week, is on the run, exiled from his family and from his people. For though Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household, he knew that he was not an Egyptian but an Israelite. And one day he acted in defense of an Israelite slave, killing the Egyptian who was beating him. And when this became known publicly, Pharaoh sought to have Moses killed, and so Moses fled out of Egypt into the land of Midian, where eventually he made a new life for himself, marrying and having children. And it is here that our reading for today starts. It's been many years, perhaps 50 or more, since Moses fled from Egypt. And the Pharaoh who sought his life, possibly the same Pharaoh who commanded the murder of the Israelite children, well, that Pharaoh has died. And now, perhaps emboldened by the death of this oppressive king, the Israelites begin to groan and to cry out in their slavery. And God, so far silent in the book of Exodus, decides to act, 
remembering the covenant promise made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And the first action God takes, oddly enough, is to create the spectacle of a bush on fire, but not burning up, to catch the attention of Moses, this exiled shepherd through whom God will free the Israelites from their slavery. Moses is not entirely on board with this plan. However, once he gets wind of what God is planning to do with him, well, he resists. He comes up with excuses for why God has clearly chosen the wrong person for the job. We don't hear all of them in our reading, but he, he uh, comes up with excuses five times just in this conversation at the bush. He will come up with more later, but just in this one conversation, five different reasons that God should not send him, Moses comes up with. My favorite one is uh, the one which has to be one of the most eloquent claims of not being eloquent that I've ever heard. Oh, my Lord, says Moses, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Moses doth protest too much, methinks. Anyway, to every one of Moses' objections, God responds. Mostly God responds reassuringly, saying, I will be with you. I will put the words in your mouth. Sometimes God responds angrily, fine, I'll get your brother to do it. But either way, one thing is consistent. God responds. Consistently throughout our reading, the pattern is this. There is a human complaint to God, then God responds to that complaint. The Israelites groan under their slavery, and God takes notice and remembers the promise. Moses claims to be nobody. God promises to accompany him. Moses claims to be a poor speaker and insists God send another. God, angered, nevertheless responds by calling Aaron, Moses' brother, to speak on Moses' behalf. And of course, the most important response for our purposes today, Moses claims the Israelites won't listen to him unless he can give the name of the God for whom he's speaking. So God reveals his name. From our perspective, this may not seem like that big of a deal. This may not seem like an important question for us. Well, what is this God's name? But at that time, there were very few people, if any, who believed that there was only one God who existed. Uh, Even for many generations and centuries after this, the Israelites generally believed that there were many gods, though their God, the God of Israel, was the most powerful, the one who was worthy of worship. And so it was very important that when someone came with a message from a god, it was very important to know which god you were dealing with. Uh, Is this a trickster god, a a god of practical jokes like the Egyptian god Set? Or was this god one that should be avoided like Mot, the god of death? Or is this a storm god like Baal, volatile but necessary for crops? You see, without some sort of identifier, without some sort of name or at least a description, the people couldn't be expected to trust what Moses had to say. So God gives a name, though it's certainly not the kind of name Moses might have been hoping for. God's first response is this in Hebrew, which can be translated multiple ways, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be, or I am what I will be. And while this certainly sounds impressive, 
it doesn't seem to be a very useful name. I mean, it doesn't tell you anything about this God. Is this God trustworthy? Is this God powerful? Does this God like sacrifice? And if so, what kind? Uh, I am what I am doesn't really help address any of these questions. Well, God continues, tell them, Ehia, or I am, has sent you. Well, it still doesn't tell the Israelites much. So finally, God goes all the way. Thus, you shall say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now we're getting somewhere, although perhaps it's still not an easy name. That name of God, God's proper name used throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh, it still doesn't mean anything. It's not a word in Hebrew. I mean, it sounds like that word, which means I am, but that's about as close as it gets. For the Israelites, knowing that God's name is Yahweh doesn't help them know how to worship properly. It doesn't tell them what they can expect from Yahweh. So Yahweh pairs this name with the ancestors of the Israelites establishing a relationship of promise with them. God pairs this name, Yahweh, with the promise given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, a promise that is now only half fulfilled as the people groan for release from slavery. God gives this name, Yahweh, which even today defies explanation or definition, and in doing so, binds himself to the promise made to the ancestors of this enslaved people. Now, as a side note, most of you uh, may know this, but any time that you see the Lord in all caps in your Old Testament, uh, like in our reading today several times, if you looked in the bulletin or opened your pew Bible and looked, uh, the Hebrew word under that all capital letters Lord is Yahweh. That's God's proper name. And over time, the Israelites felt that God's name was too holy to be spoken or to be written out fully. Uh, So it became customary to translate it with the word Lord and then put it in all caps just to set it apart from when it's actually the word Lord there. So I tell you this because Yahweh doesn't mean Lord. It doesn't mean anything. It just is the name, the personal name of God. And I think this is why God gives this name in Exodus 3. Because God could have done a lot of things. God could have given a name that would have been very descriptive of power. He could have said his name was freedom or, or liberation or something like that. He could have given the name uh, of, of the great mountains, even the mountain on which this stands, or a name that has something to do with fire. But God doesn't give a metaphor about himself. He doesn't give some sort of name that would pigeonhole God into a particular category, a weather God or a sun God or a, or a storm God. God gives a name that cannot be mined for information, but can only be called upon in relationship. By giving a name to us, first Yahweh, then Jesus, then Father, Son, Holy Spirit, among others, God gives us a handle which we can use to hold on to God in relationship. God gives a name, the name to which he will respond so that we can speak to God and call out to God and relate to God in every time of need. For Yahweh was not content to have Moses and the Israelites 
and you and me simply think nice things about God, but instead this God desires a relationship. Let me say that again. Yahweh, wild and untamable, desires relationship. And so Yahweh has bound himself to the promise given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Israel. Yahweh, also known as Jesus Christ, also known as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, has given these names to you so that you too can have him as your God. So that you too can, as uh, the small catechism puts it, call on, pray to, praise, and give thanks to God. For though God is who God is, though God is infinite and free, God has in Jesus Christ bound himself to you, claiming you in your baptism, covering you with God's name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that for you too, God will respond to your time of need, hearing your groans, knowing your pain, and delivering you from all evil. This is who God desires to be. This is for whom God desires to be. God is God for you and with you in your times of loss and grief and pain. God hears the groans and the cries, and God will act to deliver. Amen.